Welcome to the Being Better Together podcast from Learning from Excellence and Civility Saves Lives. This podcast is a series of conversations with people who inspire us about making healthcare a better place to work. We cover a wealth of topics from workplace cultures through inspiration, laughter and joy to appreciative inquiry and how to do work safely. I'm Adrian from Learning from Excellence. In this conversation, we speak with Dr. Dhruv Parekh. Dhruv is a consultant intensivist at University Hospitals Birmingham and a senior clinical lecturer at the University of Birmingham. In this conversation, Dhruv reflects on the experience of working in one of the largest ICUs in Europe during the COVID-19 pandemic. We discuss a range of reflections and lessons learned from this experience, including how preparations were made, the initial energy and excitement at the start of the pandemic, and then the shock and disbelief at the rapidity of its onset. We also cover the emotional impact of caring for a huge workload of sick patients, many of whom died, as well as thoughts on effective leadership in times of crisis. Drew shares some observations on the changes and innovations which worked well, including a novel approach to team working and task completion and an award-winning family liaison service. And we also briefly discuss Drew's role in inspiring the Learning from Excellence movement several years ago when he looked after me during a period of illness. So we are here with Drew. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Drew. Um, yeah, a real delight to have you here. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me to come along. Um, so, Drew, we we met a few times. Um, yeah, you looked after me when I was a patient many years ago, and then we've met professionally. We've worked alongside each other, and we've sort of um, bumped into each other at um, some academic settings as well. Um, I think for the benefit of the community and people listening, could you give us a history of uh, who is Drew, where where you've come from, what you're doing now? Yeah, so uh, I'm Drew Parrick. I'm uh, 43. Uh, and I was born and brought up in northwest London, went to a state comprehensive there uh, and uh, worked really hard. Uh, didn't get into medical school at first attempt, uh, went on a gap year and traveled and grew and, you know, matured and became more confident. Got into med school the second time round. went to Barts in the London Medical School, qualified not knowing what I wanted to do, really, um, and by default did a medical rotation prior to which one of my professors said, oh, well, you're going to do your medical rotation here. You better go off and experience the world first and go off and do a year somewhere else. So I jumped on a plane and went to Australia for a year, did some emergency medicine there and then got stuck in this uh, modernizing medical careers um, for higher training and ended up in the West Midlands in 2007. Uh, never to leave again, much to my family's disdain in London. Um, and yeah, so I joined the respiratory training program first and then dual accredited in intensive care. Um, somehow managed to get into research and became a clinical academic as well. Um, so I sort of part spend my time at the university now and part uh, as an ITU consultant and respiratory consultant at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. So uh, that's my sort of how I got to where I am in three minutes. Yeah, that's great. Um, all these stories are interesting, aren't they? And we could delve into it a lot. But I'm interested, actually, 
just quickly, what, what's your kind of main academic interest? So it's based around sepsis and ARDS, so, um, uh, but also um, lung fibrosis and innate immune biology in acute care. So I sort of do work across translational medicine down to clinical trials. Um, so yeah, that's sort of quite quite broad actually. Um, yeah. And then your clinical time is is it all in ICU? Or do you yeah. Do so yeah, I do um, pretty much most of my time by one clinic a week on ITU. So I do essentially a two thirds ITU job plan, um, and uh, the rest is uh, respiratory and academic. Cool. It must be, um, I often hear from clinical academics, it's quite hard working in uh, having two heads on at once, an academic head and a clinical head, and having to report to two bosses. Um, is, it, is it tough to fit it all in? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, sometimes you wonder why uh, you've taken on so much. But then I don't know what I would not do. I enjoy all of it in different ways. And I think one each help each other in different ways. You know, what I gain and learn from the academic side helps me be become a better clinician and leader, I think, on the NHS side. So, and similarly, what I learn in terms of humility on the NHS side brings that back to the cutthroat nature of academia. So I think mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a good balance. Yeah, nice. That's fascinating. That, that comment about cutthroat nature of academia... Um, I, I I would never have I wouldn't have understood that a few years ago. But can you tell us just a wee bit more about what you're getting at there? Well, I mean, essentially, it's it it's not different to being in a, a very sort of high moving, um, uh, ambitious financial sector, for example. You know, because ultimately universities work and need money. Um, uh, academics are generally very ambitious um, and want to get to the top of their field. And so those two things collide and the metrics you're judged on are, you know, are financial and also how much uh, kudos you're getting in the academic or international, you know, sphere. So, um, so yeah. And so, you know, it's just, I think it attracts very, very ambitious people as well. Who, who want who want who, who've decided they want to become professor of X or you know the leader in the international leader in their field and unfortunately you know historically that hasn't been very um, uh, collaborative so but I think things are changing um, and certain certain backgrounds and specialties are much more um, collaborative than others um, and it's, it's things are starting to move towards much more like team science rather than team I, so. Yeah, yeah, and that's probably for the best for everyone, given that most of what we end up doing in healthcare is team-based rather than individual-based and individual excellence. Um, so Adrian's asked you some really complex questions. I have a really simple question for you. When you went and worked in Australia, where did you live? I lived in Adelaide um, in oh, South nice. Australia. Yeah, beautiful. Um, cool. I wonder why I come, came back sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, that's the attraction of the West Midlands. Yeah, that's so, what it was. Just destiny, I think. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're recording this in early September 2021. Um, it, it feels a wee bit like we are 
beginning to get into another wave of COVID, at least to those of us who are, who are in frontline specialties like yours and mine. Um, just reflecting back on the last year or so, what was it like working in, in your ICU during COVID? Because, uh, and if you could just tell us a little bit about the size of your ICU, because I think people will be surprised at this and let us know how it felt to you. Yeah, sure. So RITU at the Queen Elizabeth um, Hospital is, although we have 100 physical bed spaces, we are sort of funded to have 65 patients um, and we can flex up and flex down. So, But physical bed spaces are about 100. So in theory, we're, we're one of the largest, you know, single site ICUs in Europe. Um uh, and there's not many places around the country where all subspecialty ICs are all on one floor. So we have literally um, the, the the QE building is three sort of cylinders joined together. And the second floor, one half of it running from the whole cor- corridor from one end to the other on that side is the ITU. And the other side is all theatres. So and there's a big corridor that connects all four units, eight to together um and then we're obviously now affiliated and sister organization and our hospital our other hospitals are heartlands and good hope um hospital as well so although they're separate in their sites and positions um we do sometimes move patients across um depending on 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 capacity and specialty need Uh, the qe site is very much a tertiary site so it has all the specialist services so liver and kidney transplant, heart transplant, um, oncology, hematology, neurosciences. So, you know, all the neurotrauma and neurology um, and trauma. So we're a t- trauma center. So, and it's all in one big place. So in terms of what our normal workload is, is one unit is liver and general surgery. And with the transplants, one unit is trauma and neuro the other one's pure neuro. And then the, the, the fourth one is normally cardiac. Um, but obviously during the pandemic, that all our sort of structure and how we work went, was all thrown up in the air, really. Um, uh, so that's that sort of generally asked how we, how we would normally work and the size of the, the, the hospital and, and the intensive care. We don't have a separate HDU area. So we, we, we manage all HDU and intensive care level patients um, all on one floor. Um, but each unit works in its defined workforce. So the four units will have their consultants, usually two at any given point with their junior workforce and the nursing workforce. And historically they were managed, you know, the cardiac unit managed themselves and the nurses were very specialist nurses in cardiac or liver, et cetera. Um, but again, during the pandemic, that all went out of the window and we all had to sort of just muck in. Um, so, I mean, I guess going back to the first question, you know, how was it? Well, initially it was, I'm not, was it, am I ashamed to say it? Uh, it was a bit exciting about what's going to come. Um, and although nervous, well, first it was disbelief, I think. So it felt like the rest of the hospital hadn't quite got what was coming from what was being seen around Italy and and elsewhere. Whereas we were all saying, 
well, this is coming. What are we doing? And from our sort of emergency intensive care background and our major incident planning, we were already starting to think about this. And we'd started to have sort of um, tactical meetings to say, you know, if this does happen, what will we do? And starting to make workflows and things. So until it sort of started to hit, it was exciting. It was like, oh, this is quite, you know, a challenge. And, you know, how are we going to do this? And, you know, this is going to be thrown at us. We're going to be able to be at the forefront of what we're trained to do. You know, this is what I've trained to do in my whole life. So any sort of major incident, really, we sort of jump to adrenaline starts to kick in and uh and uh yeah so there is that sort of there was that sort of element and then when the first few patients started to come in the realization was oh okay um but i think as a intensive care consultant body and also managerial body we had realized and i think we'd had some good plans in place of what we would do. And I think that was helping the rest of the hospital really start to think, well, how are we going to manage this? What's going to happen? Um, and so I think we were probably two steps ahead of some of the other, other areas in the hospital, which was helpful. Um, and we basically decided, I mean, we were told, we were asked by NHS England to, you know, consider that we might have 500 ventilated patients on our site. Um, so we had a plan of how we would work across the floor as the patients built up from one end, start condensing the normal ITU and then moving it over to the old. So we have an old building um, which um, has got some big areas with uh, appropriate um, infrastructure that you can put, you know, auction cylinders and things uh, and auction pipes and stuff in um, and dialysis pipes to do to do filtration Um but you know, there was quite a lot. There's quite a lot to think about, really, and um, we had to bring in the medical engineers. You know, where's are we going to have enough oxygen um, on particular areas if we do move people around? We plan to use the whole of the theatre floor if needed. Um, so we would have had you know 100 patients on one side, another 100 on the other side, and potentially 50 in the old building. Um, but fortunately, we never got to that stage you know I think the most we had on our QE site was um, about 110 patients ventilated at the worst of the first peak um, but then our smaller so the Heartlands site which is um, our sister hospital um, only has an 11 bedded level three or uh, ITU but the demographics of where they cover was where the patients were all coming from. So we had started to already move patients from there to decompress heartlands very early on. So not only were we getting the flow of patients from our ED and wards, we were then getting patients from heartlands because they were already at, you know, 250% capacity within the first week, week and a half, um, which was obviously logistically, you know, difficult but I think the way we thought about it was um very much like a major instance we had a very command uh command structure sort of you know we had a silver command a bronze command um twice we twice daily meetings in the morning and the afternoon um 
And before we knew it, we'd gone from being off-site consultant, sort of senior cover to on-site 24-7, you know, nights and everything um, quite rapidly. So things were moving and changing all the time. It was, you know, one day the issue was, you know, we've run out of pumps. The next day the issue is we need to, you know, and we had some of our um, operational management sort of going to the airport and intersecting trucks to get, you know, pumps and things to us and things. So, yeah, I mean, it was just so so much in flux and uh, and dynamic, in the, especially in the first. And we just didn't know what to expect, I think. And that was that was one of the biggest challenges. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember it. I, I remember it well. You it, you really described that that stretch capacity that people were functioning within, and it was stretched to the point of breaking. Um, we sent people. We had to send people out to B and Q to get goggles uh, at the beginning of it, because although my organisation was actually generally really good at, get, at getting stuff for us, there were things that we couldn't get at the beginning, and it, and it was it was genuinely really scary. Uh, something occurred to me as you were talking there, and it's about that 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 energy that you're talking about that people had going into it. And I remember that as well. I remember sort of the excitement, the, the not quite being sure what we're looking at. Are we going to be able to cope with that? And as you were saying that, I thought of that nervous energy and I thought about those videos that appeared on TikTok of people dancing and people doing stuff. And I wonder how much of that, I mean, this is this is just into the ether as a thought, really. But I just wondered how much of that was people who were really quite anxious, had an awful lot of energy, needed to do something with it. They're in their team. They're doing this stuff. And, of course, the optics of that ends up being quite negative, and it was perceived very negatively eventually. Um, but those were people who were coming to work, not quite sure what they were going to face on a daily basis. And being ramped up and then turning up and and for a lot of people turning up at work and discovering that the patients weren't coming and that happened to us a little bit at the very beginning of it people didn't come and so we had staff who were up to there and then nothing much to do with it for, for a little while and then obviously it gained momentum it's just just an observation really um for you yourself how did you described the excitement at the beginning of it and that kind of waning off. Can you tell us a wee bit more about that and how it felt from just from a really personal perspective? Um, I think what people don't recognise in the first wave maybe um, was how quickly we went from zero to everything. You know, it was literally within two weeks of having the first patient in, we were at, you know, 90 patients ventilated. You know, and actually, I remember it was an Easter weekend. No, it was a weekend in April, I think, the second weekend or the first weekend where, you know, you went from a Friday to a Monday and we had admitted, you know, something like 12, 13 patients a day or a shift. And it, that's how quickly it was happening. So the, it's only when actually you then had maybe an, an off 12-hour shift and came back and walked onto the unit, you know, for the first time. And you just, it's when you take a moment of breath, which we didn't have much time to do. And when you did that and you looked around and you just thought, 
is this really happening? Like, you know, I, I just can't believe this. Um, and it was starting to, it, it started, it's, actually, when we were, when everyone was okay, I think I was okay. It's when I started to see some of the other staff break down, uh, in particular, the nursing staff who were really stretched. I mean, we felt stretched, but they were really stretched. And when they felt they couldn't give the care that they would normally like to give, um, and, you know, ultimately, when they were breaking down, you knew you couldn't break down because you had to keep strong and steady. And they were looking at you as the, you know, and, and our structure for each, when we managed to have, when we ended up with four different units, was each unit had a sector commander and then, you know, it, the lower sort of other sort of consultants or registrar levels in terms of the medical workforce and we worked in pods to look after patients with someone overseeing they would look at you and so you know even if I wasn't physically putting my hands on patients a lot of the time you were walking across the floor and making sure everyone was okay Um, and when you were having a bad moment you had to sort of suck it up a little bit you know and say well if I break down then how's that going to look for everyone else Uh, and I saved that till I got home, you know, and had a couple of glasses of wine, you know, and debriefed. And so the the sort of impact I think it had horizontally as well to to our sort of loved ones at home, not just being worried about us coming to work, um, having non-medical, you know, family, um, but also then having to hear the stories because who else are you going to talk to about it? Um and I mean, we were quite good in terms of debriefing as a consultant body initially, because we were normally, you know, when you work on a shift base, you know, weeks on, days on, you don't see all your colleagues all the time. But here we were all here pretty much all the time, which helped because that meant that we were seeing each other more and being able to just, you know, have a moment uh, of sort of, uh, and I think we picked each other up at that level to make sure that people who are looking at us weren't going to see us breaking down overall. Yeah, thank you. That's, I think you described that yeah. really well, and I recognise a lot of that in my world as well. It's interesting that idea that, and I completely recognise it, um, having the feeling that you need to kind of put up a strong front or a, um, not sort of lose it in front of your nurses or junior colleagues. But on the other hand, we of, we often hear this message that sharing vulnerability is from the leaders is is a is a good thing because it helps people kind of uh, it validates their own experience. But then I don't know if that's appropriate when you're in a crisis like you were describing there. Actually, if you've got you're on the literally the front line, actually you probably do need some steadfastness in that in the in the in what you've described. And I guess that's how it you intuitively must have felt that, which is why you did what you did. But then then that leaves does leave you vulnerable because you then, as you say, go home and, and there are various coping mechanisms available, some of which are not very healthy. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think what we did um, after the first wave was we did have a debriefing session mixed, you know, with all the staff. So nursing, you know, junior workforce, individually so separate and then all together and that's I think that's where we did share our vulnerabilities and Mm. we did get a bit emotional and we um, you know 
I do remember after that sort of first few weeks where we were really in the thick of it saying, you know, I, I feel exactly the same, you know, and I'm starting to wane and I'm starting to lose my resilience in, you know, and that's not, I don't like that word either, but, um, but so, you know, it's okay to feel that the way that you're feeling because we all feel it. Um, and especially when it started to transpire that we might have to do it again. Mm. I think actually, to be fair, that was worse than anything. The first wave, to be fair, um, I think now looking back was probably the easiest in many ways. Um, uh, it's the ones that have come after. Uh, and I don't know how it's been for you, Chris, but we've only had four weeks last August and four weeks this June where we've had no patients at all. Otherwise, we've consistently had, you know, patients on our ITU, um, which has meant we've never been able to go back to our normal working path, like working footprint. And that's had a huge impact. Uh, and I think that's um, continues to be a real pressure point for everybody. Uh, and I think if we'd ever been able to go back to our normal footprint entirely with everyone back working where they were, even for a short period of time, that might have helped. Yeah. So, I mean, even I'm now I'm, I've had anxiety for about four weeks with what's going to come in the next sort of few months. And similarly had that before sort of uh, November, December last year, when we started to see that actually, you know, the predictions are we're going to peak again and it's going to be worse. And, um, uh, uh, and I didn't realize I, that's what that's what my anxiety was. I just thought, you know, I'm just tired and, you know, worn down. And um, but then when I spoke to some of my other colleagues, they're like, well, I feel exactly the same. Uh, and so it was the it was that whole it's not PTSD, I guess, but it was the oh, we're going to have to do this all again. And, you know, each time we do this, there's less um, there's less strength um, to do it. And there's less uh, support to do it. And the first time round, the whole hospital focus was on this. So everyone dropped their, you know, other weapons or whatever, their tools. And, you know, they all came and everyone was pitching in. Um, and then the second time round, that was less so. And then now it's like, no, there's, no one's coming from anywhere. Um, you're just going to have to get on with it um yeah and that's that that can be quite an overwhelming thought i think we we have um we've put an awful lot of healthcare staff through a truly brutal year um one of the things that you you and all three of us are used to is death and all three of us would recognize that you can do good death that sometimes deaths aren't as good as we would like them to be, but but that there's a sort of predictability to it. Um, but one of the things that's, that happened through COVID, certainly from my perspective, was there was just so much of it. And, and I think it was worse in intensive care. Um, from speaking to my intensive care colleagues, just that, Another death, another death, that 50% death rate that places were at for, for a period of time. And, you know, every bit of that is just hideous 
for the families, but also for the staff who are looking after, and particularly for staff who have moved perhaps from outpatients, where they've been doing a job on outpatients. Outpatients are now closed. We've taken those staff upstairs and they're proning and they're on the teams for that. And suddenly, instead of being confronted by a, a large number of people waiting for an outpatient appointment, a smaller number of people, but half of them are dying. And that's that's not a mental space that people get themselves into very easily and it has a long-term effect on on folk and I, and I, I do worry about that I worry about how we look after them and then now I worry about the, the ever reducing resource that seems to be available for guys in your position yeah I I, I have to say I agree I, I I hadn't appreciated that impact that it would have on other medical staff or nursing or allied health staff coming in you know even even just see, even just witnessing it you know some 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 were just coming in to do cares for example um but you know and and some some were medical staff you know you know ophthalmologists for example but they don't deal with the sort of death and uh morbidity that that, that we might do you know in a, in in a or or in acute specialties as so yeah and and they, you know yeah, I, I, it's, that's, that's something I really, you know, you just assume that if you're medical, you know, you, you're used to it and it's just part of your job and you forget that actually not everyone does the same job and it's very different. Um, so that's definitely given me an appreciation of actually, you know, how much that people were trying to help, um, but the impact that it has had on people, um, it's not um, not to be underestimated. Yeah, I agree. When we find ourselves in these unusual situations, particularly when there's high pressure or, or there's um, a lot of stress on the system, there's often some innovation or something that's found that's new or something that was already there that's that's suddenly been noticed to work very well. And, I mean, in amidst all that trauma and the sheer kind of relentless size of the problem, were there things that you noticed either in ICU or healthcare in general, in the way the teams worked, that were good and worth sort of hanging on to and uh, using again in the future? Um, so my biggest observation was that actually when everyone is on the same side um, and has the same objective with no um, ulterior motive, it's amazing what we can achieve. Um, uh, and, you know, that was just seen testament was, you know, what we did. Uh, and if we could hold on to even some of that in the work that we do, you know, it became about the patients, that cohort of patients that was going to come in, how is the best way we're going to be able to look after them? And that was the core, you know, um, objective. It wasn't about, well, how am I going to look after my, you know, neuro, my, my patient who's got a neuro problem, or how am I going to look after my patient got this problem? Um, and I know that's difficult in normal situations and circumstances because everyone's looking after their, their patients, rightly so. Um, but actually, you know, when you've got a focus um, and a singular objective with no ulterior motion, motive, there is so much that can be done quite quickly. 
and that was the other thing the, the the speed at which things you know normally in our in our environment it takes so long to get anything changed or pushed through you know uh and the fact that you can actually do these things quite quickly and actually can do them quite safely as well um and are there better processes so that we can speed up ideas innovations changes that don't take um you know three years and four panels and you know people making yeah mm. so so um so that's i guess another observation one of the other positives that came out of it for us being such a large overall unit was that there are about 40 odd plus consultants on intensive care some do purely cardiac and i've been a consultant for nearly five years and i didn't know some of them or or, or i knew of them as a trainee but they didn't know who i was and we've actually now as a consultant and nursing body and actually allied healthcare body we all know each other better um which i think has made for me anyway my working environment um now uh i feel like i it's like it's like anything when you know everyone when you know them by name you come to work it feels like a family um and you know it doesn't feel like we're just sat in our silos even within intensive care which i think is a huge positive even when we go back to our normal working sort of setup because um i think that will be beneficial um i think people are getting involved in um innovation and uh sort of workings of the department um, and putting themselves forward where they would have not thought they might have done before. So I think that's happening better. I know from talking to your colleagues and Emma, who, who worked on some of the teams there, this idea came up where you could just create teams almost like a factory just to get through the sheer work. So you'd have an airway team. Cares, oh, yeah. Just a lovely idea. And then the various other, teams and they just seem to rotate and get the tasks done yeah i mean we would not we would not have managed without that process so i mean i think that's probably one of our biggest successes and why um i think our outcomes were overall so were, were, were very good um because i noticed that in the middle period after the end of the first wave and sort of just that sort of grumbling period from August, September, all the way through to November, when we started to peak again, we didn't have any of these teams and the burden of work on, um, on, on the, on the workforce was much higher. The stress, the decision-making is impacted, I think. So I I don't know if everyone knows, but proning um, is something that, you know, we know helps these patients and actually, you know, improves outcomes uh but um there is you you could you could argue that once you could argue not to prone someone quite easily if you don't have the workforce to do it whereas when we had that workforce so we had you know like you say we had a proning team who would just come in on the dot at eight o'clock and start proning patients or deproning them and they'd come back again at three o'clock and they'd come and deprone and prone and at some points, we had three of those teams roaming the, the entire, you know, floor, um, just doing that. Um, uh, and then we had lines teams. As soon as a patient was admitted, they came, what were wheeled in, um, tubed, lined, you know, sorted basically. Um, and 
it meant that things were done swiftly in a timely fashion protocols were adhered to so it was became very much protocolized um we could do all the protocolized ventilation and proning on time um and patients could be then reviewed in a timely fashion to look at the things that i guess a more um senior body of workforce normally does is to look at all the then the the, the smaller pieces of the puzzle to make sure that they're all they're all aligned and you know things are it's very easy to come and do all the gross things uh, and make sure they're okay. Um, but when you don't have that support, you miss things quite easily. You miss the drug chart. You, there's drug errors. There's um, treatments not missed. You know, uh, uh, renal replacement therapy doesn't get started quickly enough because no one's really thought about it. Um, uh, I don't know. A, a, a possible PE gets missed because no one's thought about it because you're just so busy doing the more A and B stuff to make sure patients have got enough oxygen, not, not plugging off and, you know, not ventilating that you haven't thought about the rest of the systems and the other problems that can occur or a secondary infection that's not caught early enough. So all these things, you know, I think it allowed us to give the patients the sort of care that we would normally do outside of the pandemic because all that other stuff was being taken care of. Um, and you can definitely see a difference when those teams weren't around. And even now we've got about 20 patients on the unit um, and we don't have those teams, but we're sending people in from the non-COVID unit to do the prones and then come back out uh, and carry on with their normal shift on the non-COVID units because we know that that makes a huge difference. Um, yeah, yeah. So something to be taken from that, isn't it? And um, and we also, I guess, have shone a spotlight on staff well-being um, more through the pandemic because it has been so adversely affected. And it seems to me, again, more from the outside, as so someone who works in paediatrics, haven't been affected directly in the way that you have. But it seems to me that we have learned things. It doesn't necessarily mean that things have been implemented, but have you taken away anything from your experiences about how we can make things better for the staff experience, staff well-being, et cetera? Um, yeah, so I think, I think we're talking more about it, which is one, the first step, really, which I don't think we were. We weren't acknowledging it um, very openly. And I think people were probably reluctant to talk about their well-being uh, and if their well-being wasn't great um so having those sessions where people can come and just release i think um uh, and uh has helped um so i think that's the first thing the dialogue um i think i mean i think it's just really simple things like you know um, having an area to rest, you know, you'd think that everywhere should have an area to rest. And the fact that we didn't really have somewhere that was properly defined. Um, uh, and so having that sorted out really makes a big difference. I think just it, it makes people feel like they're cared for and valued. And, you know, and that changes your whole mindset when you come to work. Uh, especially when you're in such a strained and stressful environment and you're already, 
you know, at your lowest and feel like you don't want to come to work, feeling like people actually care about your well-being um, and uh, not just saying things or using words, but giving you tools to try and improve that, making sure that you go off on your break uh, on time, um, which as doctors we're terrible at. I think, you know, uh, I think the nursing staff are pretty good at making sure the nurse in charge makes sure that all their staff have their breaks. And um, so I think we've definitely learned from that. Actually, going back to Australia on that point, they were very good at that there on making sure you went home on time, making sure you got your break. Um, and if you didn't get your break or didn't go, they would tell you off. Coming from the UK, um, we saw, I, I would continue working through and then the consultant on the, on the floor in ED would come and find you and say, you were meant to be on your break 20 minutes ago. What are you doing? You know, and that was sort of quite a surprise because um, that's not something in that time in 2002 I sort of was used to. <laughs> um, so, and I think that, I think that allows the staff to give even more and I'm not saying that should be a reason why you do it, but it feeling valued does make you work better. I think um, it makes you f- it makes you feel like you're part of a team as well, and it makes you want to um, not just clock in and clock out. Uh, and again, you know, I think people should be clocking in and clocking out on time because that's part of the whole well-being <laughs> process but you know there are times where on occasions you know you don't want people to feel like well I'm going to do that because I don't care because no one cares about me you know because there might be times where it is necessary for that not to happen as well as most of the time you know 90% of the other time it's you you know you are able to go and get your breaks and looked after and and also recognize that you know that's the other thing. Having now worked with lots of the team that I hadn't worked with, I now can tell if someone's not right that day. And, you know, so it's the soft cues. And so I will maybe in the coffee room or aside, so, you know, just say, oh, how are things, you know, and just start a general social conversation. Are you okay? Then, you know, somewhere along the line. And so it's allowing me as a leader or manager of my unit when I'm on duty to understand also what are the cues that people, you know, might display. And I don't have any training in it, but just that a bit, I think it has definitely brought it to the front. And I think Emma and some of the others who've, you know, made sure that there are sessions that people can come to and, and implode a little bit. Cause sometimes it's just release that people need. They just need somewhere where they're not looking for solutions, they're not looking for, um, you know, platitudes or anything. They just need somewhere just for someone to listen and say, "I hear you," uh, and it's 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 bad, um, and and that's okay. Yeah. It's interesting that that bit where I hear you is is often enough. It's I hear you means the organisation or the people you work with value you because you're not just a number that comes in that does stuff and then goes away and has no emotional needs around this. Cause we are talking about highly 
uh, emotionally charged work with with an emotional toll and that that goes with it. Uh, when you were talking about um, people doing that little bit extra, it can sometimes feel when we're having those conversations like we are suggesting that we want to get a bit more out of people and by getting a bit more out of them, we take a bit away from them. And I'm not sure it always works like that. I think sometimes you can get to the win-wins. You can add value into the system and you can do that by making people feel valued in the workplace so that they feel that their effort is appreciated and that they are seen and then they get more out of work. And for me, that that's the win-win. Now, I'm not talking here about making people work ludicrous hours or anything like that, but I, I think you can destroy value within the system. You can treat people like crap and you can make them feel that they don't matter and they will give you less and less effort. And the overall effort in the system comes down or you can choose to show them that they're valued. And it sounds like that's quite a lot of what you're talking about. I had a specific thing within that I wanted to ask you about, Drew, uh, and, and that's the Project Wingman stuff. Did you guys have any contact with the um, with with the guys who came from the airline industry? And um, I know they were in the QE, but was that anywhere around you at all? Not that I'm aware of, no. Okay. Oh, fair enough. Uh, I, I, I had some, I chatted to some people who'd really appreciated that there were people from another industry that um, had come in and tried to provide some degree of support. Uh, and, you know, that first couple of waves of people of being appreciated for, for the jobs that we were doing. Um, I know a lot of people have issues with, the, the clap and stuff, the Thursday night clap and stuff like that. But do you know what? It's a really good thing for people to be allowed to show gratitude and to make people show gratitude, to, sorry, to let them do that in a way that is relatively easy but visible for them. Um, and and I'm, I'm in two minds about bits of that. Um, but I, I suppose sticking on the, the maintaining morale and performance part of it, um, we've talked about, high intensity of work um we've touched on mortality were, were there any other aspects that um there were challenges that you feel that you guys had overcome um so i think one of them was obviously relatives not being able to come in yeah and having to have conversations, um, you know, quite difficult conversations on the telephone, which initially we were doing ourselves, but then we had, again, another team set up, which was um, the family liaison team, sort of made up of uh, sort of some senior consultants um, who couldn't work on the front line for whatever reason, not necessarily from intensive care, but from varied specialties. Um, uh, a retired professor of intensive care, for example, um, who then, you know, set up with the medical students who were sat upstairs in an office um, waiting for us to document the plan for the day. And they would give a very, and there was like a script of the detail that they wanted to pass on to relatives. So, you know, your patients that the patients are stable and so we had this thing where we put on our electronic noting that you know the patients are stable critical uh, and gave them a, a sort of a, a heading of how they're doing um, and they would pass on 
sort of at least headline um, updates to the relatives. Now, when it came to really, if things weren't going very well and there need to be difficult discussions to be had, then obviously we would still have those um, as the, the team looking after the patient. And that, that's where that's where the emotive and um, elements come in because in one ways you're detached to the relative because you're on the phone, but you're also very conscious that the, the, the patient hasn't seen their relative. And, you know, it's, I mean, I'll give an example. I remember speaking to one um, lady on the phone who, you know, was then crying down the phone to say, I've got, and I could hear her children crying in the background, you know, saying, please don't let him die, you know. And, you know, when you have a face-to-face, you can decharge some of that with your body language and, you know, your facial expressions and, uh, and you can show a bit of emotion, uh, which you can't really do. And it must have come across, I just put myself in a relative's position. It must have come across as very cold, how we were maybe having to give some of the information. Um, obviously, your voice can change and you can do all that. But I think that emotional burden uh, was probably underrecognized. Um, uh, and that's definitely, you know, this week we've had a, a bit of that. And it, some of my colleagues have said how hard that's been without the teams. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that, that's, um, that was, that was, a, I think that's probably one of the, one of the other biggest challenges. Um, can, can I just pick up on that just for a wee second? Because I think that's an incredible idea. What, what you guys, what you guys did. Now, um, I mean, firstly, I, I'd just like to say, your, your bit at the beginning when you said we had some quite difficult conversations. Uh, I think most people would say that's a long way away from quite difficult. That, that is hugely emotionally burdensome as a, as a conversation. Um, and quite difficult probably doesn't do justice to the toll that this would be taking on you and your colleagues having to do those. Um, but that family liaison team that was set up, I mean, that just absolutely blows my mind. Is what a good idea. I, I work in an environment where the phone is constantly going because relatives can't be there. We have no administrative staff whatsoever. And so if you pick up the phone, you're dealing with distressed relatives. And I know that people choose to not pick up the phone because of that reason. And... I try to pick up the phone, but I know that it means a, a, a load of work because I need to find out who it is, where they are, what's going on, all that stuff. This idea of having a team who would get given information, who would then relay it to families, presumably at a time that was mutually agreed so that people knew that families knew they were going to get that, that genuine, I mean, that to me sounds like a piece of excellence within an extremely difficult situation. And I just wondered, actually, if you guys had written it up, if you'd, or where you learned it from, if you learned it from somebody else, or was that just something that guys at the Q, QE came up with? So I think some other um, trusts had done similar, um, but I think, you know, that came de novo from an idea, and it was something that was being run at the Heartland site as well as here. Um, and obviously, because we had offers from medical students who wanted to help, but they couldn't come onto the unit, and it was trying to find 
different things that we could get people involved with where utilizing all the all the help that was being offered at the time and the burden that was you know um uh, and like you say in the first couple of weeks it was literally phone 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 on all the units you know the nursing staff picking the phones up the medical staff picking the phones up um obviously distraught relatives at home at the time where you know essentially covid was a death sentence you know in that first wave when people were coming to intensive care um so yeah that that all came sort of de novo i think they've won a healthcare improvement award i think the yeah, team have award for that team. yeah um, oh that's brilliant it's a fantastic idea in 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 the context isn't it it's like clearly there was a massive pressure to to communicate with these highly stressed families in a very unusual situation and then here's a solution that at least takes some of the pressure off and it uses I mean, something to do who you know who have skills and experience who, who are not able to be tossed on ICU. Well, it makes me think about the situation we're in at the moment where we still have, we, we now have a lot of elected patients coming, but we don't have relatives coming with them a lot of the time. We're trying to restrict that. We have patients throughout organisations and families trying to find out what's going on. Now, if your patient can talk, that's fine. They can phone their family. But there might even be space for something like this to become part of our daily work around updating families as to what's going on. And um, it, it just seems like a, a brilliant initiative from, from my perspective and something that I'm going to take away and just try and think about how we might do something like that within the context of the emergency department. Um, so so j- that's just by way of a thank you, Drew. I mean, that, that's, uh, I never do one of these with Adrian without coming away with something that, kind of blows my mind a wee bit and and that's part of it for me today yeah agree um we, we may have covered a lot of what i'm going to ask you next which is around team performance and what drives good performance um but i still want to put the question to you in case we've not covered it or if you want to re-emphasize anything are there any factors or conditions you think that help the team perform well um so one is, I reckon, um, so fe- feeling feeling valued, I think we've said that before, um, and that value is both in terms of the skills that you bring, you as a person, um, and also um, investment in your development. Um, so, you know, most people don't just want to come to work and do the same thing. They also would like to learn, especially in our work arena. Um, I think um, making life comfortable or easier once you're at work or getting to work. So most people's quality of life and satisfaction with coming to work would be improved by parking, (laughs) Uh, a good place to rest, have their coffee, somewhere to get food um, and water and drink. You know, it's just real basics, um, I think. uh, feeling like they're part of a team um, uh, and uh, again I think we're all um, we're all team sort of working people I think that's what we enjoy I think in in in, in healthcare in general um, especially patient facing um, and uh, just uh, 
a friendly environment, kindness, I think, you know, and um, not just value or, or caring for, for, for the work that you're doing, but you as a, you as an individual, as a person, I think it's always, uh, I think getting people to, you know, not everyone wants to share their life with you, but getting to understand what makes or what that person is, how they've got to where they are, because then when there are challenges or difficulties, um, you might recognize things that might be triggers or uh, things that might, you know, cause them problems. Um, uh, so we all have our vulnerabilities and, you know, uh, unless we know each other to a certain degree, um, no one will really recognize when, when, a certain scenario with a patient or, or, or a circumstance may be a trigger to, 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 to something, um, which then may lead to poor performance or, uh, you know, taking your eye off the ball, I guess. Um, I think, you know, they're such simple things when you sit back and think about them and, you know, uh, and I think, you know, I always say, you know, um, I have a real big issue when people who tell us what to do, not patient facing, but operationally never come and see you, never come and walk the floor, never come and, you know, uh, understand the flow of how, why, and what we're doing, you know, and it doesn't take long, a five minute walkthrough, you know, I mean, even royalty do it. You know, even the queen was still doing it where she recognizes to keep in touch with her people, she needs to be seen. Uh, and I just don't understand sometimes why managers and operational people don't get that. It's such a simple thing to do and it would change the whole um, environment and, uh, and, and perception that people have and the disconnect that you sometimes get. Um, so yeah, that's another way I think you'd uh, you'd feel valued, even if it was token gesture. <laughs> you get all sorts of hallelujahs from yeah. from over here, by the way. You know, can <laughs> yeah. I get a witness? Absolutely. I wonder if that's harder in big organisations, like you know, to get the leadership being visible is much easier in a small trust or small organisation, isn't it? So it's a bigger deal. Um, I think that, but leadership comes in different levels, doesn't it? So I'm not saying it needs to be the chief exec who does it all the time. So for example, when we were really in the thick of it, our CSLs made it, even though they were flat out operationally 24 seven, they made it, you know, their job at least once a day to walk the floor and to ask, is everybody okay? You know, and what are the main issues? And that's not a difficult thing to do. And I think that really, and if that didn't happen for a few days, then you could hear murmurings or even, even the nursing hierarchy, for example, if the matrons don't walk the floor, the perception is, well, you're making me work like this. What the hell are you doing? You know, and do you understand what I'm saying to you when I'm saying it to you? Uh, So it's makes, I think it makes a big difference. Yeah. It's interesting. Sorry, Adrian. I was just going to say it's not it's not difficult to do. It's also easy not to do. Um, it just takes that little bit of resistance, doesn't it, to get over 
possibly. Um, one thing I was just also going to quickly reflect on was that just talking about team performance, you said it earlier that right at the start there was this, and and sounds like during the first couple of big waves, there was this sense of a common problem that you were all up against. Everybody was up against this same thing. It's a common consciousness, the common enemy, whatever you want to call it. And that seemed, I think you were describing, seemed to bring together collaboration, a will to go the extra mile and just innovate and get get stuff done. And yet we, isn't it's makes me wonder why we can't kind of bottle that because we are actually all up against the same kind of thing which is the relentless onset of uh, poor health and and trying to sustain um life as 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 best we can but i guess we inevitably end up specializing working in silos thinking about our own interests that was just a reflection for me really it made me think how we can try and capture that going forward and for me, the just to pick up on that, though, I think we work in a system where we are resource constrained. So it is natural that people end up scrabbling around for resource and fighting for the intensive care bed um, for their patient. Uh, it, it's not good that it's like that. It, it shouldn't be adversarial around these kind of things because in an ideal world, there would be enough resource. Uh, but we've seen that there frequently isn't. Um, uh, just to pick up, Drew, for a second on your, your observations about visible management, visible leadership, um, uh, totally with you. And uh, I think that for bits of organisations that don't feel as though they are seen um, by part of the sort of the management structure of, our, of their organization. It can be really quite demoralizing. But also, I think there's something that sits on all of our shoulders, and it doesn't matter what, what level you are within an organization. Almost all of us can do good things for the people that we work alongside by being visible to them, by walking through our departments by checking in with people. And you've touched on this a few times. Um, we might not get that valuing from other people within our organizations. It would, would be lovely if we did, but we can value each other. We can have strong departmental cultures where the, as you mentioned, the matron walks through where the, uh, the band seven nurses, the, the, the registrars, the, the consultants, the unit managers, where they walk through, where they see and notice each other. And it's not difficult to do, but as Adrian said, it's easy to let slip as well. And yet it has huge um, value to the people who are working on a day-to-day basis to know that those people who are in control of some of the decisions about how they work are aware of the impact that that's having on their lives and are available to converse about it. And I think that we can have a, a powerful impact around that, even as perhaps we don't get the attention that we would like to have from some aspects of, of our non-clinical managers, and only some. I'm treading a really difficult line here, because this is not an us and them. For me, this is all of us in it together trying to provide good care and yet 
it, when you talk to people around the country, you hear recurrently um, from people in emergency departments and intensive care units that where were the execs? And I'll, I'll put it out there. That's what they're asking. Where were the execs? Where were they when this was going on? And I am certain they were working incredibly hard, doing lots of stuff. Nonetheless, they perhaps didn't feel visible to a lot of people who were literally on the front lines around this. I think that's, that's something that they yeah. might think about. I think that's why I think it's perception. You know, we yeah. perceive it in a particular way. And again, like you say, it's not a them or us in any level, you know, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, you know, always say the same thing. We're in it for the same thing. Okay. I come to work every day when I'm clinical for one sole purpose, and that's to look after the patients in front of me. And our ultimate goal is that whether you're operational or whatever, you're operational, you have to think about a whole unit or a whole department. You know, you're clinical, you're nurse, you look after the patient in front of you, but ultimately we're all in it for the same thing. And, you know, I, I just... So sometimes when you hear the dialogue and the sort of uh, from juniors, doctors, for example, or from nursing staff, or, you know, it's very much like they do this or they think that. And you're like, actually, when you get to that stage and when you when you become a CSL or, you know, whatever, and you see it from that view, you see it very differently um, because you're given a different responsibility, but ultimately they're trying to do, you know, they're, they're not bad. They're not bad people. No one is a bad person here. You know, yeah. no one's, no one's, a, everyone's trying to do their best in a very difficult situation and how we try and communicate how we're feeling um, and being given the opportunity to communicate, I think is really important. And it may be that there's nothing that can be changed about that situation. But the fact that you, again, it's come back to you being heard and listened to and then acknowledged and then say, you know what, sorry, if we can and when we can, we will try and do something about this. We recognize it. It's rubbish for you. But yeah. you know what? I have not got any more nurses. I've got no more, you know, and have you got a solution for me that I can even consider? You know, and so that's what that's what you would want to be able to do and i think places that can do that um would be you know i think it would make the environment much better to work and much more positive despite how rubbish it is um yeah hear that can i can i pick up on just a a little bit of that you you're we're talking about how how it feels to work in the environment and people perhaps having a pop at other people um, did you encounter much in the way of sort of frazzled individuals and perhaps challenging behaviour and civility? Did you have much of that? And when you did have it, because I'm sure you had some, um, did you have a way of dealing with that or any thoughts on it? So I think initially we know, because I think everyone was at the same adrenaline rush, it's when that rush started to go, that's when you could see the the, the cracks and people's behavior become a bit erratic. Um, You know, yes, we did have people who were breaking with stress and, you know, lashing out, you know, understandably, but inappropriately. And um, I guess the mechanisms we had was... um, 
that I think we were all, we were all generally all acutely aware. I think we're fortunate that we have a very big department, but also quite close knit. Some of us are quite good friends with each other as well, and so actually, it's very easy then to say, "Oh, did you notice that so and so doesn't seem right today?" or there's been a few sort of, you know, outbursts and, you know, and then we've been able to then step aside and have a conversation about that. And we have had to ask people to go home to say, look, you know what, you're just not well enough to be here. Um, You need a break um, and you need to go home and don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. Um, And just understanding that it's normal um, and, you know, it's not, and it's not it's not no one's going to look on you in a bad way this is just you need we need to take you out of the situation and come back another day and it will feel much better uh so and then we did have all the well-being hubs um uh, and a weekly sort of catch-up session we 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 would normally have for example a consultant meeting once every f- couple of months um but we've been having consultant meetings during the worst times weekly um by zoom even um uh, and some we've even said like fine we bring it so i've sat and had like you know a glass of wine whilst i've been on the consultant meeting on my at home on zoom um and sort of have an agenda the main things but then just an opportunity to vent yeah in a in a safe place where we know that actually we can and um no one's gonna judge us on that and to be fair that's been another positive and we've taken this we're now having fortnightly consultant meetings by zoom and i think that's been a positive because we don't all have to be on site to do those i'm assuming that you don't have your meetings at 8 30 in the morning like we do no no we have them at 5 30 <laughs> 5 30 well you know it's five <laughs> o'clock somewhere yeah. um, you, you know you said something in there that uh, that i think encapsulates an awful lot of the positive response to people frazzling and that you said that it's understanding that um, people are going to be a bit frazzled that it's normal that people might have a little bit of an outburst but you didn't allow it to be normalized in the workplace when it happened you've stepped in and you've looked after people and got them out of the department so that they don't continue to behave that way. And I think there's a big lesson in that, and that is that you can break anybody. But when people are broken, it's not okay to keep them in an environment where they're poisoning, polluting, breaking other people as a consequence of it. And that they need to be looked after, but they also need to be taken away from hurting other people in the process of going through whatever they're going through. And it's, it's brutal that we've put people through this amount of distress over the last year or so, but I really like that. Um, the recognition of it's normal to be like that, but it's not, we're not going to normalize that in our workplace. Um, and, you know, another take home, Drew. Thank you. Well, I think the other thing to, 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 you know, it could be anyone, it could be me tomorrow. Uh, it could be, you know, we're, we're all um, 
likely to succumb to it at any point we're all hanging pretty much everyone is hanging on a thread yes um and um like you say if you if you allow that to continue then you know all those threads will be cut (laughs) on multiple people it doesn't take much to push people over um and you know we we really need to be mindful that we're looking after those of us that are left you know, because we, we, we need everyone. Um, and so, um, yeah, like it, yeah. So I think that's right. This is good. This is really great stuff, Drew. It's quite, um, in, in, I, I'm sort of almost surprised by the level of, um, detail you're giving on this. I sort of, um, we could, we could sort of dive a bit deeper, but, um, Maybe there'll be another conversation next year, sometime after we've gone through the next wave, and see how this is all gone. There's, I, I don't think we can kind of have you on this um, podcast conference without um, talking about the origins of learning from excellence. So uh, I've probably talked about LFE well over a hundred times at various different conferences, workshops, um, and other forums, and I've always told the story about how I was a patient, it was over 10 years ago now, and I uh, presented to A&E with respiratory distress and chest pain and turned out to have pneumonia. And um, it was actually around the time of a previous pandemic, which was much, much milder, the H1N1 virus. And um, I, I got admitted onto respiratory ward and um, you were the registrar, one of the registrars on the team, and I was sort of, I, I always talk about this excellence as I described it was competence on the one hand and compassion on the other. And, and you, you demonstrated both of those two to a very high level. And I sort of held you in massively high esteem and was incredibly grateful every time I saw you. And I know that Emma, who's my wife, um, known well to this community, uh, also really benefited from the input you had um to her and to our family and then you know for those who by some chance haven't heard this story yet, i i got better i wrote a letter to the hospital um citing various uh, individuals you were top of the list um and explaining what it was that was excellent this is not just a thank you letter it was a thank you letter but there was much more to it than that there was some intelligence in there um, this is what excellence looked like it was these behaviors it was this organization and then you and i crossed paths again i think it was about two years later at one of those small academic meetings and we recognized each other and i asked you if you'd received a copy of the letter and you said that you hadn't and that was really where the whole idea from learning from excellence came from is that here's some positive feedback someone's gone to the effort of writing it down for the purpose of giving feedback so that, that individual would learn from it, but also for the organization to learn. And um, and it was just, I guess, disposed of by somebody in the organization. Um, we have in this meeting a, a, an interview or conversation with uh, Alex Gillespie from the London School of Economics. He's a social psychologist who did a study where they analyzed compliment letters um, and they one of the shocking parts of his story is that they discovered several of the 
trusts, NHS trusts just disposed of these letters, um, shredded them, I think, in some cases, uh, which is quite horrifying. But I, I wanted to sort of, I guess this is as public a forum as I could get, actually, just to say thank you again. And, um, you know, you, you, you're, you're a brilliant clinician because you have that competence and compassion um, and don't ever lose that. You, 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 as I've said before, you know, giving you their feedback so you, you realise how valuable that is. Thank you, Adrian. Um, you we were talking about something that might break you. So kindness can sometimes break you as well. And, and good, nice words can sometimes push you over the edge. So, um, but yeah, that's, um, uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. And I think I, 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 you kindly sent a follow-up email after I said to you that I didn't receive anything. Um, but just actually, I've taken a lot because I was a junior registrar at the time and um, I've learned from it and I do hold on to that behavior which sometimes through your training you can lose because you come into it in a in a way where you know not naive but you know you're you're fresh you've come with some enthusiasm and compassion and that compassion can sometimes be driven out of you as you get through your higher ends of training and the pressures of everything that comes with it and um, I've always tried to hold on to that and you know I think compassion is probably the word of uh, the afternoon really because I think compassion for your patients and compassion for your colleagues is probably what is going to make sure that we excel in lots of different ways um so yeah no absolutely yeah good stuff and I would add in compassion for yourself not being too hard on yourself um so many people are so hard on themselves and don't get what positive impact, particularly in healthcare, that they have on the people around them. So we're all about compassion. I like that. Um, just a really quick question, Drew. I mean, it's got it maybe huge, but from what we've been through, from what you've been through over the last year and a half, what's the the sort of the, the best version of the future? Um, and how do you think we might get there of the things that you've talked about? What what should we hold on to and what do we need to do to keep a hold of them? I don't know how we hold on to this um, idea that um, there is one objective in healthcare and that is to look after patients that are unwell and try and get them back to their core health that they would like to get back to and ultimately wherever or whatever angle you're coming from that is the same objective we all have and so this is not about um tit for tat um this is not about um uh i just uh, you using kind words using a language that is not adversary um you know things can still get done and you can make your point without um cutting emails and um raising your voice uh and ultimately compassion training kindness you know all these things you know are are, are core to what we all want to do every day and 
we can still get to the end and look after patients and still man and 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 be in our silos and you know defend what we need to feel like we need to defend without having um uh without it being fractious really because I, I just every time i'm in a situation where i'm not happy about something i lift myself up and i try and take a bird's eye view of the whole organization so what am i asking for what am i worried about how does that fit in with what's going on at this point in time and is that reasonable and is my want or need for what i think is important overall high up on the on the need or is there something that's more in need so a bit like what they did with covid at that point in time that was the need everything else dropped down so what is it now and it may be different every month and we have to think about you know where we support you know and, and i'd be quite happy to go against my department if it meant that the need was needed somewhere else so you know i'll give you an example before we finish obviously we're getting busy on itu we're very short staff and we're asking for redeployed staff again but i know that the front door and my physician colleagues are being hammered just as much if not more and so how can i justify asking or requesting for those people who yes we might have trained up to be redeployed to come back and help us and starve another area where they still need to look after patients so why don't we look elsewhere where is it that things have had to be put down and work isn't being done where we can spend a few days to train up and there are lots of translatable skills that can be used in other areas so it's just another example so i think you know it's just um i think every department needs to take a bird's eye view as well as a view of their own need um yeah so i hear that the the systems approach to it um and really brilliantly articulated uh, i have one last question from me for you and it is the deep and meaningful question that we always ask and that is drew when you walk through the door Everyone is hearing your theme tune. They'll all have different theme tunes. They'll all have different things going on in their heads. But what would you choose for your theme tune when you walk through the door? Chariots of Fire. Oh, beautiful. A bit of Vangelis. Oh, I love, I love that. <laughs> In slow-mo, yeah. <laughs> that's a great... Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. I like it. Good choice. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think that's a, a great point to end on. Though, Drew, it's been lovely to talk to you. There's been some gold uh, conversation here. Um, so thanks again. No, uh, thanks for asking me. I think it's a bit, it's a bit quite, it's quite a nice bit of counselling actually, without you realising. <laughs> uh, it's a massive privilege, Drew. Really, uh, really love, love talking to you, um, and the absolute best of luck for whatever's coming in the next wee bit. You too, Chris. Um, fingers crossed and all that that this isn't what we fear that it might be. Yeah. Um, but thoughts with you. It will. It it will be what what it will be. Really, won't it? 
and this nothing is- else. <laughs> yep. And so the someone said, uh, we, we've got this slide here at work now. It says, uh, what will be will be and nothing else. We've done it once, we've done it twice, and we'll keep doing it. <laughs> so, uh, yep. Yeah. And, oh, uh, there's a lot to Where people, if people wanted to get in touch with you, you're on, I think you're on social media. Yeah, yeah. Is that the best place, like on Twitter? To... Yeah, 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 that's fine, yeah. What's your, what's your handle? Oh, it's at Dr. Drew Parrick. Okay. All right. Well, you take care. And you too. Nice to see you. Nice see you. to see you, Chris. Thanks a lot. Take see care. You, Drew. Bye. See you. So, huge thanks to Drew for sharing his experiences from those first COVID waves. It really is hard to fully appreciate the sheer magnitude of the workload and its impact on systems and staff. Drew described it brilliantly, and I'm left considering a few take-home messages. The most striking one for me is this observation that we can achieve great things if we pull together towards a common goal, but also that we can only do this for so long before we run out of steam. So efforts to harness that energy need to be balanced with resources to support the system and the people who do the work. That seems like a really important thing to remember as we face further challenges in the future. That's it for this week. Until next time.